Hello again. Welcome to episode six, part three. If you've just finished part two, nice work. You're crushing this. If you haven't listened to part two and you want all the goods, pause here, jump back and take a listen before you start this episode. But if you're good to go, we are too. So without further ado, please enjoy episode six, part three with Peter Marshall. Can you walk me through Land Assembly and why it's so important to theme park experiences? What I'm hearing, what you're saying is that, you know, you're designing different rides and you've got your big e-ticket rides for people that are looking for those like really heightened, uncertain thrill experiences. But then you've got different ride types that you kind of um, pepper around the park that allow people that are looking for different experiences to, to have uh, their own unique experiences as well. So can you talk me through like how you think about the design of the land and how you assemble it all together. Right. So the land assembly has to do with the developers. And the developers are the ones who have to, are putting the investors and they're putting the project together. And, you know, land assembly has to do with zoning. You know, what what's the, pro, what's it zoned for? You know, what's the government think? If I put these pieces of land together, you know, I get this much, but, you know, this one costs too much. So maybe I don't want that piece of the puzzle. And so you do, uh, you hire a huge firm to do a feasibility study. You know, how many people within a one and a half hour drive of this park might actually come to here? Is it the right audience? Is there another park nearby? What other entertainment options do they have? From, from that, you get your attendance figure. So you've got this many people and, you know, this much land, you know. So that's our attendance figures. Okay, so then, and we have, you know, this much money that we want to spend. Um, okay, what's the ride mix? How's it going to work? And you so, okay, we got our parking lot. We got our D&E. We've got our back of house. We've got, you know, an expansion area. And we start putting these big building blocks together in this kind of paradigm diagram to, to, to talk at a very high level about, you know, does, is this going to work or does something have to mm. change to get that white paper working properly? Yeah, fantastic. Um, jumping back to thinking about the context of like this big city that kind of runs this theme park and all the different various kind of components that come together. I've had a question from a few people that uh, have asked me um, after knowing that I was going to be speaking with you and they're super, super curious about the tunnels that kind of connect the theme park together underground. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what it's like to design those experiences for the people that you know need to get from point A to point B? Yeah, it's that whole back of house, which is just really easy to underestimate. The... The goal is to keep guests immersed at all times within the theming of the zone that you've created. You know, you're hiding screw heads. You know what I mean? Your 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 bottles that you serve drinks in are themed. You know, the bathrooms themed. Everyone's that you see who works in the stores is, you know, pretending to be from a land is in they're in uniform and there's characters walking around in uniform and you can never it'd be like looking into the camera uh, when you're making a movie, breaking the, the fourth wall. You never want to break that immersion. And to support that, um, you don't want to have staff walking around. You know, you don't want to have like golf buggies filled with, you know, toilet paper driving around. So every face that you see has a secret back face that allows the staff to, to come in and out. And, you know, sometimes through the floor because there could be a, a, a situation where a, an attraction is in the center of the park and it's in an, like it's an island. You, there's absolutely no way to come and go from it unseen by the guests and so you you build a tunnel underneath to give access to those spaces that's really cool um you also mentioned that the theming is extending to food and beverages bathrooms can you tell me a little bit about how like the theming is actually extending into restaurants and the, the actual like you know every kind of facet of that guest experience can you talk through that in a little bit more detail 
For sure, for sure. In the past, retail was exit through the gift shop. When I first started to visit theme parks, I thought that phrase was, you know, a phrase, just a, a catchphrase. But then I got off a ride and exited into the gift shop. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's literal. Oh, okay. And mm. at, the, at the back end of every ride is a gift shop with um, standard gifts that you could get anywhere, but also ones uh, specific to that ride. Um, because you've just made a memory, It's you would then want to have a memento, right? A souvenir to re-remember. Makes perfect sense. Um, but it, sometimes that can be a little bit crass and mm. you know what I mean a little bit in your face to go through these stores like that's just so consumptive and obvious so increasingly there's um, opportunities to create F&B experiences sorry F&B is food and beverage and retail experiences that have stories and uh, themes of of their own that are uh, immersed in in the story. So if you were an assassin, you know, could can you can you can you make this you know online you know outfit that's you know Kevlar proof and has like holsters and pencil cases and stuff that's you know all a part of the story. And you meet someone, a tailor who's helping you put it on. Um, the more obvious examples would be from the more recent uh, Star Wars: Galaxy's Edge, where you know instead of just going and buying a lightsaber, you go into a lightsaber boutique where you know you you have you go on a tour almost a guided experience and you what's the right color you know gemstone for you and that's going to make your lightsaber and what's the right hilt and you choose from this beautiful in this beautiful store underneath a glass table and someone's taking you and then later you learn some lightsaber moves and you know it seems kind of stupid when you're an adult but the the kids are just losing their minds about this. Yeah. And then the who doesn't want to go eat at the cantina, right? Like it's oh. it's the best. And drink the blue milk. And drink the blue milk. Um, another topic that um, has come up in conversation before this episode was bathrooms and how specifically you know where to place them, how many to place, and how you think about designing uh, around cues. Right. So there's a term called peak in park. Peak in park is based on your attendance figures. Um, and peak in park is um, March break, the Friday of March break or Thanksgiving long weekend, right? Where everyone in the universe is going to the theme park, um, like July 5th or something. I don't know, like some major holiday. And they're going to be lineups because you can't design the park to hold all those people and then be three times too big on every other day of the year. Mm. And so you you kind of find a middle ground and it's all based on, you know, uh, literal distances to the bathroom and finding ways you'll find often that in between two lands, there'll be kind of like a, a chunk of buildings, you know, that maybe are restaurants that have different facades on either side with a service corridor down the middle. And then there'll be bathrooms in there that serve both sides of the zone. So if you went into the bathroom uh, from one zone and then kept walking instead of going back the way you came, you'd have entered the other zone not in the right place, kind of out of sequence. Uh, it's a way to serve the maximum number of people. So all that to say that if you go to a theme park on a busy day, you will be in a lineup no matter what. But the fact that women's washrooms have longer lineups just because their facilities take up more real estate than men's is outrageous and totally unacceptable. And um, moving toward gender neutral uh uh, facilities with family uh, washrooms as well is a way toward helping to solve that problem. Oh, that's great. 
Uh, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more in detail about adapt- adaptations. Sorry. Uh, and you mentioned before film property, and I'm curious about how you might take a film or a book uh, and adapt it uh, into a theme park experience. Like, is there something that you think about in the very early stages to get those that vision and that story and that concept kind of coming together? Yeah, um, there's specific challenges depending on the IP. For example, I uh, sorry, IP's intellectual property. Um, the brand owns the brand and is being licensed by the client uh, for use in the park. So the brand has say in how its intellectual property is being used. So if you've got a cartoon character, that's great because the brand owns the cartoon character and you can use it however you want. But if the brand owns a film property, they don't own the characters. You'd have to pay extra to use the character from the film's face, the actor from the film's face in the ride. So now immediately you're looking for sets and iconography and scenarios and mood and theme and character typologies and and outfits to bring the theme to life and the story to life without using a specific actor's face. Mm, I can imagine that presents its own set of unique challenges. And um, can you tell me a little bit more about what that's like, uh, given that you can't perhaps work with an actor's face that's part of this film property and you're working to identify iconography throughout the film or set pieces or things like that? Uh, how do you like know what to anchor on to, uh, to work with? Well, sometimes it's pretty obvious. Sometimes there's a strong iconography and story arc within the film that, and that's great. That makes it a little bit simpler. You know, there's this specific building and stuff happens in this specific building. Okay, well, let's emulate that building and then we're going to go into it. And then, okay, what kind of stuff can happen to us? What can we do in the pre-show to help people understand, you know, what their role is in this? Because the other part of it is you can't be the lead character. Not everyone can Mm. be the lead. So are you a supporting character? And in some scenarios, the ride might have two separate lines. Um, Okay, so how are these two characters different? Is is one the good guy and and one the bad guy? You know, which team are you on? Um, And how is that experience going to be borne out on the ride itself? And then what happens when you get off the ride? So... And, you know, what are the key moments in the film and the, the beats? What are the beats that we can play off to to really, you know, help the guest understand where they are? And you can't be too nuanced. It's got to be deep and it's got to be real and it's got to be authentic. But do not ask too much of someone who just wants to go on a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can imagine if, like, you're giving them a deep set of character instructions and they're just here to experience the ride, it's going to be a bit of a, a jarring experience for them. You want to be able to dig deeper if you want to, but you don't mm. have to. It's like you as the guest get to decide how deep you go. Absolutely. And I guess that um, maybe speaks to your level of immersion as a guest. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. You know, you want the people to understand who they are, what they're doing and, and you know, where they are, but there's always opportunities to, on the best rides, to dig a little deeper and, you know, ideally have a different experience each time you go on it. Mm. And what does the testing experience kind of look like? Uh, I'd imagine there would be uh, participants that you'd be recruiting. You mentioned doing it in-house. Is there some kind of scaled back way that you test the experience before it's actually built so that you've kind of offset your risk down the line? Yeah, we, as the sort of advent of modeling became a tool for our team and architecture, it equally became a tool for our team in the creative department um, because we could use it as a a real-life scale test uh, that could work in conjunction with the architecture team and also as a base for our illustrations because, you know, sometimes the client gets a little nervous if if you're pitching them some concept that is, you know, 
way out there. They just don't believe you. But if you can tell them that you're working at scale, you can get a bit more buy-in. And then internally, we're able to use VR and animations to really explore the spaces ourselves and, you know, see if it's working. Um, not at a hyper-realistic scale, although we actually have done that recently. Recently, we did a, a go-kart track um, in an undisclosed location. That's uh, one of the biggest in the world. And we modeled the whole thing up using uh, Unreal Engine, which is a video game engine um, going full circle, a real-time video engine that allows us to create animations and stills, but also to literally drive around the go-kart track and, and race each other and, and test out the track with the, you know, we have a professional go-karting, um, you know, champion uh, as our consultant. That's fantastic. Is that like, uh, can you talk through like the VR experience? Is it essentially like you're, it sounds like you're creating like a mini video game just as a method of testing these ideas, but I'm wondering like how you immerse yourselves in it as the people designing that experience for people. Like, is it VR goggles? Is it like, you know, you've got huge screens, like what, what does it actually look like? Currently we're using just VR goggles and, um, we're, we're moving up to room scale VR so that you can walk around instead of just sort of standing in one place because you, you really need to make a big a big room for people. And I know there's talk uh, from our um, media and attraction studio, um, which is based in LA. We also have another office down in uh, Orlando recently give us, you know, feet on the, an architect down there, feet on the ground to, to work with those teams where we do want to make um, basically the holodeck which is a, you know, a technology which is now available. Um, we're used to kind of a hybrid experience, um, but really immersive and crucially shared because the putting on the VR headset kind of is a solo experience. So we're looking for ways to create shared experiences. AR is almost there, but these, these hollow deck with the, with the 3D goggles, they're, they're really working well. Mm, and is that like um, just thinking through how it looks in my head, I imagine it like a, like a large warehouse, like a design studio that might be empty. You've got this like space that you can kind of construct the, the virtual world inside of as a projection. You wear the goggles and you can actually physically walk around and tilt your head and look up and see the sky, look down and see the ground. Is that like how it actually looks as you're exploring these uh, spaces together uh, in the creation of them? So for VR, you're... You just, you, I don't know if you've worn VR goggles before, but it's basically like, it's crazy. If it's a really well real, realized world and you put the goggles on, you're basically, oh, this is my new home. I, I live here now. This is where I live now. And then you, you get used to it and you're like, oh yeah. And then you take them off and you're like, whoa. And it's kind of really, really, really jarring. It is shocking how quickly your, your eyes, you know, will adjust and tell your brain that you're actually here. So the, that's how the kind of goggles work. The room space, um, well, room space VR is just that you can walk around a bit more with the goggles on and the wire suspended from the ceiling so that you kind of have less of a tether. And in, in the future, there'll be untethered goggles. But the one that, that the holodeck version is it's actually just a white room. It doesn't have to be that big, maybe, you know, 15 feet by 15 feet with a whole bunch of projectors in the ceiling in the center that work in unison to project an environment onto the blank canvas of the walls and floor and ceiling uh, around you. And, um, you know, you it can move in conjunction with you and you can move through spaces and it's kind of starts to feel like an infinite space. That's, that's remarkable. Um, is that some of the the new technology that you're kind of working with that's coming together to create the future possibilities of theme parks. So we talked about how we could potentially use it as a design tool. Um, in terms of a guest experience, uh, projection mapping, and here's one example, how projection mapping and animatronics can work together. In the past, an animatronic, which is a moving, you know, robot character, you know, this, you know, that's like a bear, let's say, or, you know, a character from a film. And it's kind of pretty static, but it's got this amazingly complex uh, system, robotic system of, of motion control underneath it that's incredibly realistic. The facial expressions have always been a real, real challenge. 
and how to to get that right and the amount of time and effort required to get that right and working on a on a on a kind of scale of expression that can be understood from people from a distance and so increasingly the projecting onto um the face exclusively. So the rest of the character doesn't have any projection mapping on it. And projection mapping is where you take a projector and the projector understands exactly what surface it's projecting onto and adjusts what it's projecting as that surface moves to only project onto that moving surface using the correct perspective required for that view angle. And they move together in conjunction uh, so you can, they now use facial expressions for projection mapping on uh, moving animatronic characters. Wow, that's remarkable. And how do you keep your team and your clients aligned uh, throughout this kind of process? You're working with all this new technology. Um, is it easier or is it sometimes harder to visualize how, how things are all going to come together? Uh, what's different to how you've maybe worked in the past? Constantly looking for ways to enrich the design experience and bring teams together sooner and in in, in newer and more compelling ways. Um, so where in the past we would have used a 3D model, we used a sketch, and then the sketch would be you know handed off to a 3D modeler who would model it up, who would hand it off to uh, an illustrator who would paint it. But but now there's an opportunity for a, a huge amount of back and forth. The illustrator knows how to use 3D and can set up a camera and choose the view angle that they like. And they can draw on top of that sketch and the modeler can, you know, add more detail as required because, you know, it's it's much easier just just, you know, put some railings and a and a and a a chandelier, say, in the middle of the space. And to, to try and draw that in perspective is a nightmare. But so many other things are very easy for the illustrator to do. And so as the team works together more and more with these different technologies, they understand uh, what strength uh, uh, they should be focusing on and and what, you know, what they should keep and what they should ask ask for. And there's a wonderful back and forth as these new pipelines develop with these new technologies. So we're always looking to support that. For me, for every project that we have, I want to make sure that we're finding a way to push something forward in the middle of that project. Some Try something out, give it something a little bit more time to see how we can integrate it into our pipeline. And what do you think are the parts of the process that just won't change, that are just always going to be there because they're fundamentally still as useful today as they were yesterday? Writing. We'd never be able to take away writing. And sketching. Sketching can take a lot of different forms. You can sketch in a 3D model. You can sketch with a pen. You can, you know, sketch with a tablet. But that you sketch on a on a on a on a marker board, right? On a like that that moment when you take the pressure off the the expression of of what you're trying to say, and you're not really thinking about scale, and you're not really thinking about you're just digging right into an emotion. You will never want to lose that. Mm. Uh, digging into an emotion is a really nice way to frame this. So I want to talk about um, a project that you worked on. Um, many people might not know, but you've actually designed a waterfall in the <laughs> past. And I was hoping you might be so good to describe what that was like for you, uh, to take that experience or that emotion and translate that into something that you yourself created. I would always stress that I'm working on a team. I never want to um, forget that because, you know, I used to think that design work was a, you know, a solitary art, but in, in this scenario, it is most definitely not. But that aside, um, I was brought on as a new creative director on a project uh, um, where another the original creative director from our team uh, had to leave the project for some reason or another. And it was right at its uh, onset. And the client um, was not happy about this. And so I got on a conference call and and they're like, so, you know, tell us about yourself. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, this, you know, modeling, 3D background. And, you know, it's kind of soon after I'd started. And they're like, okay, well, how are you going to help this project out? 
And I'm like, well, I can imagine that we could, you know, work on, because they'd kind of masked up what they thought the waterfall would be. And I'm like, well, I can imagine we might be able to make it better by, you know, could it be multi-level or could you get in behind it? And, you know, can we use false perspective? And maybe we can, you know, test it out in 3D and, and use VR to make sure that it's a compelling experience. And they were like, great, um, show it to us on Monday. And I'm like, <laughs> and this is Friday afternoon. So I'm just like, okay, here we go. So yeah, ha, 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 what's it, what's it, what's it like to de de design a waterfall? Well, you know, I found out that weekend. So, you know, there was sketching, there was a lot of research, um, there was modeling with my team and, and, you know, reference imagery and, and again, like review, test, VR, review, test, re VR, repeat, scale, you know, where's it going to sit on the site? Um, it was a waterfall that already existed in, in, in their other park, but they were moving parks and now they wanted a new, bigger, better waterfall. And it was in an aviary. So it was with zoologists and, and you know, serious research people. So this was a specific, it had to be a specific waterfall from a specific place in South America. Mm. And um, what were the reference kind of elements you were working with? Like you had the existing waterfall, you perhaps had maybe in a, the outline of a design kind of already kind of con concepted by the creative director previously. How did you like take it to that whole other level to, to increase the experience or increase the immersion? Like what was the, the details that you chose to include that um, made the difference? Well, I think we were in Colombia. We had the choice of being in um, Colombia or Venezuela was where it was sited because um, it was in a bird park. So they're a migratory species. So we could be in one of those two places, but it had to be from there. So, you know, this happens to us quite frequently at the office on every project where we're suddenly researching something like in great detail on the internet, just pouring ourselves into it. And <laughs> you look over someone's shoulder and what, what are you researching? So like, you know, penguins, lost civilizations, cars, rock types, ancient warriors. And I, I learned all about different types of primitive construction huts for a project. And it's, it's, it's amazing. So you end up learning a lot of different stuff. And so you're looking for ways to enrich the story. In this case, um, this was in an area that had birds, uh, it had flamingos and this other type of bird that, that were red and, and they were calling it, you know, the, the tropical red zone or something was, was their theme. And I'm like, okay, well, I found a red waterfall which I, I couldn't believe it had this really interesting uh, algae that would bloom at certain times of the year and turn red. Um, and the, and the research team from the, from the zoology department is helping me and, and, and the, our team's working together. And again, yeah, like I said, they had kind of had just this big rock and it, you know, a waterfall can't look like it's coming off the top of a mountain. It needs to look like it's a river that, you know, then there's been a shift in the land and it's carved away and, and kind of made a recess in a cliff uh, over the years. And, and that's what a waterfall looks like. So how do you, how do you simulate that, um, you know, using rock work? And so these were the, <laughs> this is what we kind of dug into. Mm. It, it sounds like it's really quite nuanced uh, comparatively to the original mock-up of the original waterfall. Like you've added this incredible level of detail and story and history to the one that you've now created. And um, what was it like for you to visit that for the first time, this waterfall that you'd actually created in this park? Like, can you, can you describe the feeling that it gave you? Well, it's not done yet. They're, they're still building it. What uh, currently what phase it's at is they've, um, there's this competition that they had there where they tender out the contract to design the, the rock work. And here we go back to this rock work thing, you know. So we had to go on a research trip to visit the real waterfall. And so we went to South America and the guys at work were like, dude, this is never going to happen again. Like, you just have fun on your crazy research trip to go visit waterfalls in South America. It was like this junket, you know? And so 
we're on like a DC three is all like riveted together. And like, we're sitting on beach folding beach chairs in this thing. And it's like all rickety. And there's this big turbo prop engine. And we're like puddle jumping through South America and going all these different places and arriving at hotels at night and bungling out in the morning onto a bus to go in the middle of nowhere. So we start hiking up to find this waterfall that we've chosen as our research example. And of course, we're talking these huge cliffs in Colombia. So the waterfall, I'm like, this looks like the Wong waterfall when we went to visit. It's, this isn't right. We had to keep hiking, you know, up another 100 meters, another 150 meters. It turns out like this waterfall is like five waterfalls. But we we finally came around the 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 corner and, and there it was. It was amazing. And all the subtleties of, of, of what, what you learn when you're actually there, that uh, above a certain height, the water um, kind of vaporizes in the air because it goes so fast and it turns into this mist and everything gets soaked and it's crazy loud and it splashes a lot and there's this dugout pool at the bottom and vegetation grows in certain ways and Right underneath the waterfall, there's no vegetation and there's moss. And so you learn about the different plant densities. And of course, the, the further down the rock wall you get, the smoother the rock is because it's being worn away. And you get these really interesting striations where the different densities of stone have worn away at different rates. So you get this layered look. And then there's these pock marks in the, in the stone at your feet that's just been little pools of water that have been, you know, worn out over centuries. So, of course, we all just take off our clothes and jump into the waterfall pool. <laughs> of course, yeah, first thing. <laughs> It really sounds like, though, that research trip that you've done gave you a whole other level of appreciation and vivid detail that you could then work with. And something I, I notice in my design practice is that the the more you can kind of immerse yourself in that experience that you're ultimately trying to design for others, the better that you can create that experience and the, the more nuance that you can understand and then therefore design for. Um, Absolutely. I'm curious, like... Over that whole trip, like you've mentioned, like this almost like adventure that you've gone on to then just see the waterfall. Is there anything about that experience that um, you've taken from just getting there that you included in the design detail? Yeah, the that whole coming around the corner, you know, where you're 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 climbing, you're climbing, you think you've seen it, you think you've seen it, and then you know the different types of experience that are available when you get there. So you don't want to reveal everything at first. You know, you want to sort of, can you pick up a side view of it? And then can you make the pathway, you know, and build up some vegetation in one area? Or is there a pavilion of some kind that you then have to go around or under something? And then, you know, all is revealed in this spectacular, spectacular moment. There's also this thing in, in, in design sort of tool in theming uh, worlds where you um, do a false perspective so that as you look up toward the top of the waterfall, um, you have a recognizable plant species uh, and, and there's a big one near you. And then you replicate that same plant species at the very top, but you make it like one eighth of the size. So you're like, oh, that plant is so far away that it must be eight times taller than I think. And you do that with all of the different components to make people, you know, think it's bigger than it is. Oh, wow. So it's like a, a false false perspective in a sense. Absolutely, um, yeah. Where that gives them the illusion that it's grander than it really is. Yeah, and that happens all the I time. I never really thought about that. Around, when you walk around and look at all the the castles and the and the big icons in in the big theme parks, that's uh, if you if you think about it, you'll see it all the time now. Oh, that's fantastic! Um, I'm kind of sad that I now know <laughs> that that's what it's like, <laughs> but it's it's amazing that that's the level of depth and insight that you can take into something um, because. I imagine it's it's really challenging to to design those landmarks that um, you want to create a sense of awe for people, and those are just like little tools in your toolkit that you know to deploy that um, you can engineer that moment where they have that feeling where they're just taken their, their minds blown by it. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Looking to the future, uh, what do you see as the future of theme park experiences? Well, we talked about memory making. So that's a key component for all theme parks. I would say sustainability is, is something that our office is thinking about a lot. We've got a sustainability task force where that's not something that is an option anymore. Um, and it's something that's built into all of the projects. You know, can you have a carbon neutral um, theme park? You know, there are theme parks, you know, they're putting solar panels on top of the enormous parking lots that go for miles and uh, are able to generate enough power to power the whole theme park. So that's a that's a key component um, across the board uh, that's going to be rolled out um, for all theme parks. Uh, there's also the ubiquitous theme park app that um, you 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 book your trip and then you adjust your trip and you can see wait times. And now you use it uh, the camera on your smartphone to scan um, themed components while you're in line to unlock different characters and in different experiences that increasingly are going to, um, like we talked about, as, as rides become less unimodal and more multimodal and there are, are additional opportunities to, to interact with the ride, that, that phone and that app and that RFID bracelet, they're all going to be key, key components. And then so we talked about pre and post park, uh, pre and post ride, and then and then the pre and post park experience, where you're, you know, you're still. You know, can you play a game that you know? Can you keep playing when you get home, so, so that you build up your character and unlock something when you go back? And so this big, you know, multi touch point ecosystem starts to form. Mm, it really sounds like you're looking for new and interesting opportunities to extend the themed experience outside of the traditional kind of big building blocks. Like you're looking to develop a, a sense of nuance to those themed experiences right down into the de- details of how they book in to a ride or how they enter the park and how they scan their tickets so that every opportunity becomes a moment for delight almost. That's a, that's a great way of describing it. Mm. Um, what do you think adults should experience theme parks? Um, so when I first started going to theme parks, I hadn't, I hadn't been to any theme parks. I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but in the past two and a half years, I've been to 30 theme parks and I hadn't been to any. So I've been to like a crash course on theme parks these past little while. I didn't really, I didn't really get it. Um, why would you go to a theme park? Um, well, to start with, they're for kids. So, you know, but why should adults go for, for to, to a theme park? Because, well, they're not just for kids. So here's an example. I, I went on Everest at Disney with my, with my boss, the CEO, Kale. And my previous experience and going on a, on, a, on a scary roller coaster, which is what this is, would be to like, you know, grab onto the bar and press myself down into the seat as hard as I could and then use like controlled breathing techniques to not like, I don't know, throw up and die. I I don't know what, I was scared out of my mind. And he just taught me to scream. He was like, just, he just started whooping and hooting and hollering. And then when we got going, he would like let loose. So when he taught me how to scream and now I'm the guy who screams his brains out on the rides. And I think I'd mentioned catharsis before, but you know, you've heard the phrase shake it off. Well, if you actually get up and shake your body around and actually move your body around and shake out your limbs, you, you will have shaken off something like you, you've, you've, changed who you were from before you shook it off. It's an actual physiological um, experience. And so surviving (laughs) what my body thinks is I'm going to die and you survive it, there's a euphoria and, and, and an excitement and and you get to share that with people and and you really get to get to let loose and and you just get to open yourself up. It's I love it now. Mm. Uh, has screaming really made a difference to how you experience roller coasters? 
1000%. It's a totally different experience. Can you tell me a little bit about like how like how it differs from like the clenching like you, you spoke through like the shaking it off but how has your experience of experience roller coasters changed since you've taken on that new way to experience them? Well, you It's kind of like you've gotten over the fear a little bit and you're kind of you know that there's an opportunity here if you let yourself go and you really embrace the moment and, and dive into it, that there's an opportunity for an experience that um, could could open your mind up in a, in a way and, and, you know, fire different neurons and, and have a kind of a different experience that could really can really shake you up and and just be cathartic and instead of mm. like fearing it and and hiding from it and enduring it if you like throw <laughs> you like just like oh like i'm just sitting there talking when the I, I shouldn't have come on i'm i've made a terrible mistake like i'm talking the whole time this was a bad idea this is this looks way oh no, oh, no. <laughs> and then ah and it just changes uh, your whole body just responds totally differently to it Mm, it sounds like you give yourself permission to not endure the experience, but perhaps really, truly, authentically experience it. Yeah, to, li to live it. It's true. You, you, yeah, you, you let go. That's fantastic. That, that sounds like great advice for any adult uh, inside of a theme park is to let go and just truly experience it. Um, that leads me to like, well, my next question um, is like um, maybe letting go, being an adult. How do you keep your inner child alive uh, and design for, for that childlike sense of wonder? How do I keep my inner child alive? I have um, an, uh, a youthful exuberance and a, a naive optimism that that comes to me kind of naturally. I think it comes from support. I've received a lot of support growing up from my parents, kind of an unconditional type support. And as I get older, um, I see that I need to support other people and, and be supported in order to retain that optimism it's just kind of born on on trust. Um, it's kind of an attachment theory uh, idea. Uh, Dr. Gordon Neufeld would be someone that I would suggest people look up to understand attachment theory and how important that is to um, feel secure and secure enough to, um, you know, love yourself so that you can love other people in a really practical way. Um, it comes down to getting enough sleep. You know, I find if I don't get enough sleep, I lose that sense of optimism. And, you know, building routines that um, are based on a mindfulness about what your body and brain respond positively to. Like, be very, very mindful about what you like and what you don't like so you can, you can work to your strengths. And that would include food, that would include exercise, that would include the tasks that make up your day. And if you can keep your passion alive, then that that's kind of, you know, learn and grow, learn and grow, learn and grow. And, you know, go to the park with a ball, lie down in the grass and look up at the leaves in the trees and, and you know, open your mind. Hmm. And um, what have you opened your mind to when it comes to design um, since changing careers and, and moving into creating themed experiences for people? I had mentioned previously that I used to think that design was a, a solitary act. And of course, it's not. And then when I came to Forec, another kind of pivot was required. Uh, when I arrived, I was kind of using my team to complete my projects. And that wasn't really going great because 
I was bringing kind of an intensity to the desire uh, to complete a project at the highest level. Um, that was kind of the, the team was a tool for that. And so they, Fork kind of supported me in, in some executive training, which was amazing because, you know, I fully support therapy of all kinds. It's why wouldn't you want to coach for your brain? What are you, what are you crazy? Um, you know, it's like a, a brain coach. So the, this woman, Kathleen, who's super, super smart, super awesome, kind of did a 360 and, and helped me sort of dig down into, into some different emotions. And now I, where before I had used the, the team to complete the project, now I use the project to build the team. And that mm. was kind of a profound an honest conclusion that I came to myself. Um, and then when you think about building your team, which is made of people who want to learn and grow just like you, if you think about the project being a tool for their growth, you basically have opened up a pathway to unlimited fulfillment because the opportunity for growth in people is basically infinite and there's lots of people and you get to grow when you're doing it. And it's this incredible reciprocal process. That's just been really a transformative experience for me. Mm, what I'm really hearing is that um, your relationship to what the tool was completely and dramatically shifted. The tool originally was the team. Now the tool is the project and really what you're trying to create is teamwork, collaboration, coming together, opportunity, and a lot of possibility for people. Exactly. And that's quite remarkable. Um, knowing everything that you know now, everything that we've kind of discussed, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, to sort of build, build routines that, that routines can help. Um, that whole mindfulness and, and paying a close attention to your, your passions. Uh, for me, I've had a lot of different hobbies over the years and I've changed jobs over the years, but there's been a common thread throughout um, that's taken me a lot of different places and sort of being able to dig into that um, has been great, but I don't, I don't know that I was... <laughs> clear that there that was the common thread you know i was i was easily distracted um i think it'd be cool if i'd sort of started up some side hustles and you know worked on sort of building my brand outside of work i think that would have been pretty cool would be to find ways to to share the passion of the various you know i i spent a lot of time rebuilding guitars and building you know guitar pedals and stuff and well, that's cool. And is there a way to share that with people? Um, and is there a way to align the passions with the work that you do? Um, I wish I'd known about attachment theory sooner. Uh, I wish I'd known to pay attention to nutrition sooner. Um, I didn't know anything about that. I'm lactose intolerant. I've probably been lactose intolerant my whole life. I'd, wow. I had no idea. And, and, you know, I was kind of suffering as a result, but I didn't know why. Um, I don't know. Uh, Looking back on this sort of conversation, uh, and and you know, I've I've talked a lot about my, my friends and 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 the support structure that they've given me, and I would say that that's one of the most important parts. That you know, as you move forward in life, your parents play less and less a role typically, and but you still need that support from from your family and your friends, and to really really work on that. Mm, it sounds like um, really stepping back from like an individual perspective and really thinking a bit more holistically about not so much about team, but support and togetherness perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's been crucial throughout for me. Hmm. Finally, wrapping up, I know this has been a long, detailed and really like a delicious conversation. Where can people learn more about you, your work, uh, and where can people learn more about Forec and the projects that you work on? I'm uh, Peter A.B. Marshall on Instagram. 
I'm Peter Marshall at Forec, F-O-R-R-E-C, at, uh, on LinkedIn. You can also visit our website at Forec.com. Um, you can email me. Sure. Give me an email. Peter A.B. Marshall at uh, gmail.com. And um, my daughter told me this morning that she wants to be my uh, marketing manager and that I can be uh, internet famous on TikTok. So I'm... <laughs> keep, <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Keep your, keep your eyes open um, for that. I have a little um, side note uh, prior to thanking you. I, I, one of the questions that we talked about before was, um, what was my favorite project that I designed? And I think it'd be important for me to say that um, my favorite project that I've designed is my life. Mm. Um, I, I, and that's something I would have told my younger self. There's a book by um, Burnett and Evans. Um, they're from Apple and they were teaching a course, a, a kind of elective on, uh, on a university. And the book is called Designing Your Life. And two of my close friends, Jeremy and Mike, they, uh, you know, Mike, um, we started up this kind of like, little self-help group. I call it the board of directors because it sounds better. And in, in terms of support, um, it's been amazing. Uh, you know, Samantha and I have been together, my wife, Samantha, since 1992. And she's been crucial uh, for me in, in, in designing our lives together. We live in a little house in downtown Toronto and we can walk to work together. Um, on the way, the kids uh, go to school in the TTC. My daughter comes home for lunch every day. And, you know, this model little, this modest little house near the terrible mall and beside the awesome park, um, just it's been the focus of my life to try and find out what are the priorities within my life that give me the most amount of fulfillment. And just be careful what you're chasing, because um, it, it might be that you just need to be able to walk to work. Um, mm. And I, you know, that, that would be my closing thing that, that I wanted to say. And I also just really want to thank you. I know that this has been a really involved process to try and, you know, dig in deep on the questions with a really kind of crazy profession and a, and a long journey. And I just really, really appreciate the time you've put in. It's been incredibly beneficial for me to work with you on this and um, get to get to know you a little better. You're a great guy. Oh, thank you, man. Like it's been really the pleasure is mine. Like it's been fascinating learning about you, your work, this whole industry that like I'd not really known about. And like we've had a number of conversations um, where I just totally realized how out of my element I am in this conversation, but it's been this incredible discovery of just how deep the work you do is. So thank you for your contribution to this episode, to myself and my understanding, because it's been quite a remarkable journey. So thank you. Awesome. Awesome. And I would encourage people to, to just send me an email if, if you want to, you know, have any questions or want to chat about anything. I'm, that'd be delightful. Great. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time yet again. This has been such a great episode. I've loved being able to understand your work in a whole other level of detail. I've loved like even understanding like what goes on behind the scenes, like how involved all these different components of the studio are to come together. And ultimately what I think I'm left with that kind of moved me deeply was how you're designing new memories for people. And that's really the outcome or the output of your work. It's not these like big parks. It's really what's left in people's minds. And I think that's what's uh, hit me the most. Uh, it's been quite fascinating to get that. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Well, this has been huge, but everything good must come to an end. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can get the goods on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network or listening app. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Mike signing off. Mike signing off.